Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and, get this, actual discussion because Alice is back. Oh yeah, we finally managed to synchronise Discord and have an actual conversation, which I'm going to play over several weeks and out of order because, well, why not? I can edit stuff. It's cool. Uh, so more on that in a little bit. But first... So, we're going to start with some sad news, uh, an in-memoriam, uh, because I'm very sad to report that the renowned commentator Carolyn Shoemaker has died at the age of 92. She was working through a time before digital photography, before digital imaging, and she would spend many, many long nights outside at the telescope taking pictures of the sky with her husband, Jean, who was a pioneering planetary scientist. And um, basically how, how you would do it, you take a photograph of the sky and then you take another photograph of the sky a little bit later and see if anything had moved particularly much in relation to the other objects in the sky. That's how you spot comets. And uh, although she had no formal academic training at all, uh, Carolyn Shoemaker became one of the best, most successful comet hunters in the world. Uh, I mean, amongst other things that she found, she was the co-discoverer of the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, which, if you were around in the 90s, you may remember, um, collided with Jupiter in 1994. It was big news at the time. There are some fantastic images of the comet breaking up and pieces of it smashing into the Jovian atmosphere. It was amazing to see at the time. Uh, links in the show notes if I can find them. Um, and alongside her husband, you know, she did a lot of really, really good work. Uh, the Planetary Society um, actually awards something called the Shoemaker Neo Grant Program. Um, these and these grants, uh, these Neo grants, uh, Neo stands for Near Earth Object, are awarded to astronomers to fund the search for asteroids, comets that might present a threat to Earth. Um, and you know, Carolyn Shoemaker worked really hard to raise um, awareness of the dangers of asteroid impacts. Uh, and she will be missed. She was a much, much respected figure in the astronomy community. And uh, yeah, she will be greatly missed at Astra. Moving on to something more joyful uh, and staying with the Planetary Society. If you're unfamiliar with the Planetary Society, it's uh, an international organisation, although it's, it's very US centric. It was founded or at least co-founded by Carl Sagan and um, currently the uh, the CEO is uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. But I'm a member of the Planetary Society because I'm a massive space geek. And that means that along with every other member of the Planetary Society, I own a bit of a spaceship. I own a bit of a spaceship that is actually in space right now. It's not very really big. I certainly couldn't go for a ride on it. Um, but it is a pioneering bit of um, space research. It's called the Light Sail 2 uh, because the Light Sail 1 blew up in a rocket. Um, but it's experimenting 
with the idea of using literally photons, literal light coming from the sun for propulsion. So the craft was launched in 2019 and um, it's been sending back some amazing photographs every you know, every, every week we've, we've seen great stuff. And although it's coming to the end of its originally proposed mission lifetime, there are plans to keep it going. The craft is still functional. Uh, all the instruments are still working. The sail still works. It, it can still um, change its orbit and do stuff like that. So they're actually crowdfunding at the moment for more funds to keep the mission going. Um, details in the show notes. It's a fascinating, fascinating bit of genuinely citizen science. This whole thing has been funded by members of the Planetary Society. So, you know, don't think you have to be a billionaire to play around in space. You've probably got to be a billionaire to go still, but to actually get involved with something that's doing real science actually in space, anyone can do that. So uh, links in the show notes, go have a look. And with that, we're going to call it for space for this week, because uh, obviously we do have the discussion with Alice and I don't want to spend too much time going over just, you know, news stories and stuff like that. So that's it for space. Okay, so moving on. Finally, we get to the conversation with Alice that you have all been waiting for. If you remember, a few weeks ago when we wrapped up our first phase of this discussion, we were getting into the relationship between Sam and Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Um, and we were discussing whether this, this relationship could be read as a queer relationship, uh, whether, as I contended, it was just one of those very rare instances where you get a portrayal of an intense male friendship that has no connotation beyond that. Or what? Uh, there are links in the show notes to uh, a couple of things that Alice will be, well, and me, will be referring to uh, in this section, particularly uh, a fascinating and very well-researched and written article um, about the queerness of Lord of the Rings and why it matters, which I really do recommend you uh, have a, a look at because it's fascinating and, as I say, very, very well presented. I was impressed. Now, I should also say, just for context, that this is taken from a conversation that lasted very nearly four hours and um, covered a wide range of issues. And I, this was not the beginning of the conversation, basically, is what I'm saying. And although I've tried to, to edit it so that it is completely coherent, and I think I succeeded in that, there may be the odd references to things we were talking about earlier, which you have not heard, because we're about an hour and a half into the conversation when this section starts. And, you know, just to confuse you, you may well hear earlier parts of this conversation in later shows, because that's how the sausage gets made. Anyway, without further ado, Alice, what are we talking about? Lord of the Rings. Where were we? Specific, specifically, um, the uh, contentious issue of Sam and Frodo's relationship. Yeah, I mean... I say contentious. As, well, actually, it's contentious depending who you're talking to, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm fairly sure, for example, that my reading of Sam and Frodo's relationship as a very rare 
instance of deeply felt platonic love between men probably isn't that contentious. Um, seeing seeing Sam and Frodo as a bromance probably doesn't upset that many people. The gate, gatekeepers or the same people who were upset about Tim Blake. Is it Tim Blake? Tim, Tim Drake. I got it wrong yes. again. Tim. Um, whereas the reading of Sam and Frodo as actually queer probably does upset some people. I doubt it would have upset Tolkien particularly, but it does upset some people. Oh, um, I'm assuming that you read the article I, and watched the video. And, uh, they, and links, links in the show notes, obviously. Um, well, just out of interest, what did you... So, starting off with the article, what did you think to to it overall, I suppose? Um, I, th- I, I think it's plausible. It's a very well-argued piece. Um, it backs up the points that it's making. You know, it's not... It's, it's not, not something that's been pulled out of somebody. No, it's, it's, or it's this is been, a edgy new take on oh, a classic. Text. It, it's clearly not intended to be that. It clearly is. I mean, do I think the person that wrote it, I was going to say had an agenda they wanted to push. I, I don't think I mean it quite that strongly, but do I think that the person that wrote it was maybe looking for the evidence? You know, they, they, they went in with the theory and then went and found the evidence to back it up. Yeah, there's an element of that. But that doesn't mean the evidence wasn't there. Um, right. And I think you raise a really good um, point about a lot of problems, I think, with academia, where you go in particularly seeking something, whether it be, you know, the a text or mm. a social sociological phenomena. Rob and and if there's anything that contradicts that, they dismiss it offhand rather than going right. Okay, I think I need to amend my perception here. I, I think because I think there's this need that to prove your premise. I think a lot amongst a lot of academics is right rather than actually being open to being proven wrong. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think a lot of people in academia they think a thing and so they set out to prove that thing. And that's not how it should be. What you should do is Mm -hmm. you think a thing. So you set out to see what the evidence actually says. Now, I do think, I mean, that's as a teacher, that's what I'd say. As somebody who actually writes about stuff, you can't do that with something like English literature because it's not it's not chemistry. It's not. I mean, if, if you're a physicist. You think a thing is so, and so you work out how to do the experiment to show whether the thing you think is right or not. And well, because it's a subject like history, there is still an element of fact that you yeah. need to acknowledge. Um, yeah, in in history, you can you can do the research, and you can find the contemporary text, and you can say, right, you know, how did this king die? Well, this is what people wrote at the time, so probably then this is probably what happened. But then with history, you have to accept that some of your sources may not be reliable. Uh, Some of your sources might be outright lying for propaganda purposes. Some sources might be lost um, and so on and so on. And And then you get, so it's, it's, it's much harder to come up with an actual right answer in history. Then you get to English literature and all bets are off because it is an, Meaning in literature is almost entirely subjective, I would argue. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think still to a degree, though, that there is such a thing as um, authorial intent and yeah. framing that text in its historical and cultural but context. There's often, there's often no way of knowing what the authorial intent was. Well, of course not. But I think like this article did, I think, really, really well is looked into the autobiographical background Tolkien. Uh-huh. And yeah. I think Gate provided a really great argument for how actually we could read a queer subtext here. I think mm. and I think it brings to question why is there such a pushback against this kind of reading? Like, what harm does it actually pose exactly? What does it compromise for the rest of the text? Sure, as you've pointed out, the relationship between Frodo and Sam is a really good example of a male platonic relationship, which is filled with emotionality and has no... There are no, there's none of the, it, it certainly challenges the sensibilities of masculinity as it's seen today. But absolutely. You see, I, I think I'm, I'm with you in that. I mean, I, whilst I think the article is very persuasive, I personally am not persuaded. I don't think that makes any difference, actually. Just, you but, know, nobody is forcing anyone. Well, no to interpret the relationship that way it's why it's called an interpretation well, quite, exa- exactly and and what i would say is that although i am not persuaded i don't first of all i don't doubt for a second that the person who wrote the article absolutely believes what they're saying and i have no problem with that and i have no problem with anybody who agrees with them it's it, I, I would absolutely accept that it is a completely valid reading of the text and a completely valid reading of the characters uh, and, and i i honestly don't see how anybody could argue otherwise it's 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 not my reading of the characters but it's a valid one mm-hmm. yeah in, in order to not be a valid reading it would have to be completely outrageous yeah there would need to be nothing in the arguments that they make and mm-hmm. and there is something in the arguments that they make they're, they're perfectly sensible cogent valid arguments so I don't. I don't see that anyone in good faith can just dismiss it. Mm. And I think there needs. There is also a question of whether this is going against authorial intent, or if this is just something that could be argued to be an evolution of interpretation, or what the characters have come to represent or mean mm. in another historical, social, political, cultural landscape, which is our. I mean, I, I well, forget, today, I forget as opposed exactly. to the time when it was published and writ- written and then published. I, I, I forget exactly what year it came out. But it was the early 50s, wasn't it? It was post-World War II, wasn't yeah. it? I'm sure. Um, now, I don't think very many people in the early 50s were reading Sam and Frodo as queer because, well, for a start, nobody would have used that word, but also at least not positively. But also most people just weren't thinking along those lines. That doesn't necessarily mean that Tolkien wasn't thinking along those lines. Well, I was thinking as well that from what the article was saying, that it could be interpreted that it was he did that unintentionally. 
Yeah. Especially when citing his relationship with or, or his admiration for Auden and mm. the. Oh, hold on one I second. Remember the name of the female writer that the. Um, Just need to go down to the journal. phone. Okay. Because I'm a massive professional, obviously at this point I had to interrupt everything to go and answer the phone. So um, there was a brief hiatus at this point. Absolutely. Where were we? Um, I think I was mentioned. So I was mentioning how Tolkien may have inadvertently or unconsciously inserted that subtext, perhaps. Because yeah, you, I mean, he certainly article highlights how he admired Auden and another queer writer mm. at the now, time. That is something I I take minor issue with. Okay, um, he knew is it his Catholicism. No, I mean, oh, Tolkien knew Auden. Tolkien Tolkien was Auden Auden's professor at Oxford. Oh God, we had this discussion last time. I. Let's, shall we just call it? Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I think we. Yeah, we realised it was Oxford. Um, I'm just gonna, just in case, I'm gonna call it Oxbridge. I don't, I don't think I'm qualified to say how much Tolkien admired Auden as a person. He didn't like him as a poet. He did graduate Auden, but he graduated him with a third, and he was quite curmudgeonly about Auden's success as a poet. If asked, and a, yeah, if somebody asked Tolkien's opinion about Auden's poetry. Tolkien's stock answer was, I gave him a third. So, right. so I don't think he admired, I, I don't think we can say he admired Auden's poetry. Whether he admired Auden as a person or not, I don't know whether we can say that or not. I mean, I can't, I can't remember how the um, article describes the, their relationship. Off the top of my head, neither, neither can I. But I, 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 that was something that stood out to me as uh, not entirely sure you can say that. Uh, I think the article describes them as friends. And I, I genuinely don't think they were. But it, it's certainly fair to say that Tolkien knew a fair few gay men. I mean, there was quite a, certainly by the standards of the day, at Oxford and Cambridge universities in the 30s, 40s and 50s, there was an acceptance of homosexuality that didn't exist in the wider culture. I mean, there, there were a lot of gay men at Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Um, Another, I don't know if he was... Again, I should have really checked this. But um, my other contemporary that came to mind was E.M. Forster, who's an, one of my favourite writers. Mm-hmm. And he, though he was not in the public, he wasn't out in the public eye, because, of course, imagine what would have happened if he was yeah. out in yeah, the public eye. Of, life. Course, of but, course he wasn't out, yes. Um, but amongst his friends, he was very much out. Yeah, he like made everyone. A- I, 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 the same, you, you could say the same about uh, about uh, W. H. Jordan, about Christopher Isherwood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, their friends knew the people that mattered knew. But I mean, would they have gone on the BBC and made an announcement about it? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> absolutely not. But I mean, it, it seems to me unlikely that Tolkien didn't know that people like Auden and Isherwood and Benjamin Britten and many other people who were up at Cambridge, uh, Oxford and Cambridge at the time were gay. There's no, I, I find it inconceivable that he didn't know. And he, I don't find any evidence anywhere in anything of his that I've ever read that he had a problem with that. It, it, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't come up. The culture of the time was casually homophobic. His work does not come across in that way to me. Mm-hmm. So is it conceivable that he 
Right. First of all, is it conceivable that he deliberately put it in and that that was his intent? Um, I don't think it's inconceivable, but I don't think it's likely. Simply because I I can't quite see why he would have, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, um, as as you said, it was more of a. It was more. But of a reflection of the deep bonds that were formed during the war. And yeah. Um, yeah. So so. Do I think it's conceivable that he observed close relationships between people that he knew at Oxford, either students or, or the dons or whatever, and perhaps didn't connect in his head that they were sexual relationships, but saw the closeness of the bond between male friends, as he would have perceived it. Male friend. Yeah, as, as he would have perceived it, yes. Um, and... <laughs> it's, just, it's really funny, the whole... They, this is in particular aims at female writers they were just good friends yeah. but yeah. <laughs> in spite of the fact in the letters they are ardently expressing their passionate love for one another it's yeah like... <laughs> uh, but, but do, I, do i think it's conceivable that he could have known young men who had that that closeness of relationship and he admired that and that that was transferred onto Frodo and Sam without talk, you know, talking, not particularly thinking of it in a sex, as a sexual relationship. Yeah, that's completely conceivable that, mm. that that relationship was inspired by Tolkien's observation of two gay men. Yeah, I can completely see that. Because as I say, I mean, it, it's not that there was a huge shortage of gay men at Oxford. You know, it, Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge are kind of famous for it. So, <laughs> you know, it, it it's you know that's not a stretch. I don't I don't think you can be accused of being like revisionist or woke to to no. make that leap. It is a leap. We can't prove it. I don't think. But yeah, I I, I don't find that to be a difficult thing to get my head around at all. Um, so if we're talking about authorial intent again, I think the reading of Frodo and Sam. Yeah, I, I think the reading of Frodo and Sam is queer. I I, I don't think. I don't think you can make an argument to say it can't have been the authorial intent. You can you can make an argument to say you don't think it was, but you can't make an argument to say it couldn't have been. I don't think. Yeah. And so that article again, I I, I find plausible. I I, I don't I don't have a, an objection to it at all. Yeah, and I think a quote which I find kind of summarizes my opinion on it all is queer people have always existed. When we look at history, we must follow breadcrumbs to find ourselves. And I think that summarises it pretty well. Completely. And because it's only until, I think, recent um, academic research where people have actually been not only acknowledged to have been queer figures in history, but... Well, that sort of thing isn't being whitewashed anymore. I mean, there's this really great YouTuber called Jessica Calgren Bozart, and if you haven't heard of her or checked out any of her videos, I highly, highly, highly recommend her. I will try and remember to put some links in the show notes. Well, I'll send you a link to one of her. That was that was going to be my particular next question. video outside. So she is a disabled queer creator, where she discusses things like disability, um, LGBTQA plus rights. And one of the theories that she does is looking at historical figures mm-hmm. who are queer mm-hmm. and an analysis of the historicity, if I said the word right, 
of certain queer figures and her most recent one is Sappho or is on Sappho and for a while historians were trying to argue or they they more or less created a husband for Sappho as an argument against her yeah <laughs> queerness uh, and it's just yeah. so laughable Given that we named female homosexuality after the island Sappho came from, I, mm-hmm. I, gen, gen, really, come on. <laughs> of all of all the historical figures that, that 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 you you can't possibly do that with, Sappho's got to be fairly high up the list, surely. But mm-hmm. um, but it's it's also it's also fascinating. I think uh, this is a, a mild digression, but I promise I'm going somewhere. It's fascinating to look back at history. And see just who was queer. There's a very good episode of Behind the Bastards with Robert Evans, mm-hmm. which is a podcast I've recommended before, and I would recommend it to everybody. You'd look. Do, do you listen? Um, I I am familiar with the podcast, but I have not listened to it. Oh, you should. It's great. Robert Evans himself takes a little bit of getting used to, but um, he's he's a very insightful writer. He did a fantastic episode on Cecil Rhodes, who was not a nice person. I think it's very fair to say. But Cecil Rhodes was um, obviously a colonialist. He had a country named after him because he stole it. I had no idea that Cecil Rhodes was gay. But he wasn't just gay. He was very flamboyantly out and aggressively gay. Didn't hide it at all, which in the 19th century was a hell of a thing. He got away with it because he he was in Africa where nobody cared. But, but in that... In that episode, um, obviously because Rhodes was gay, you, there was sort of some some examination of Rhodes's contemporaries in the 19th century. You know, the men who built the empire, and it the point that Evans was making was it's, it's actually genuinely quite striking how how much of the British Empire was built by men who had close male friendships now evans evans sorry i just love how that what's what that is code for now <laughs> um that that was sorry uh alice and i are speaking over discord dear listener and so we can see each other um i put close male friendships in very heavy air quotes um <laughs> now evans goes on to suggest that he actually thinks that a lot of the men who built the british empire weren't gay they were probably romantic uh, romantic asexuals so so they genuinely were deep loving non-sexual relationships between some of these men but certainly there's no argument that Cecil Rhodes was anything other than very gay indeed uh, and I throw that one out partly because it's an excuse to recommend Behind the Bastards which I do frequently but also to, to point out that it's not just the progressives in society who were gay yeah it's it's not because every time you talk about figures from history being anything other than cisgendered and heterosexual you get accused of being woke and like trying to trying to impose some kind of left wing woolly diversity banner on history. And I think the fact that people like Rhodes were openly gay is kind of giving the light to that and underlining the quote that you gave us that, that queer people have always existed. They've always been from all walks of life. They've always been from all sections of society. It's just some people were in a position to get away with it, and most were not. I was going to say, since you threw a podcast recommendation, that what you just highlighted is the basis for another podcast called Bad Gays, and it's essentially looking at problematic 
queer people in history. Again, I'll send you a link. Please. And again, links, links to both podcasts just mentioned in the show notes. Um, and they, yeah, basically the two hosts, they take a historical figure who is queer, who is dead um, or done or both. Um, some questionable things <laughs> and uh, at the end after going through their exploits uh, they decide to deem problematic or not <laughs> yeah interesting I mean I I, pres- I presume they have a reason for picking on the gays but um, actually well, they, they, they're both gay themselves yeah. so it's not like I, it's two straight dudes picking on I, the gays an, an interesting it's an interesting exercise to do with pretty much anybody important from history. There's quite a few gay Nazis in there. Oh, there were, yeah, there were a hell of a lot of gay Nazis. They were. <laughs> um, so I know the video kind of covered the same ground yeah. as the article. And also. I mean, um, did, did you have any other, did you have any um, thoughts on the video? Uh, well, again, very much the same as my thoughts on the article, to be honest. Uh if I haven't already said this, links to both in the show notes. It, I, I, I found it very well argued. I think I, with the with the video, though, it was there were some things, some aspects that were very tongue tongue in cheek. Oh yeah, I mean the the, the video is taking itself less seriously. It's 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 it doesn't have quite the same academic veneer. And again, highly recommend the channel because he does some fantastic videos on analysing media and bisexuality and rights yeah no I, um, I've, I've had a little uh, a little bounce around the that that channel it's it's uh yeah there's some in, there's some very interesting stuff on there and she was also um i think she was one of the first um channels where i i actively sought out after coming out mm-hmm. in, as spy and i have to say it was very i I, I I would be remiss in not saying how much it's how how much her videos have been important for me for coming to terms with my own sexuality. I think so. For anyone else that's in the same boat, I highly recommend her channel. And again, links in the show notes. Um, and I would just say, as somebody who who isn't having that struggle and has been fortunate enough never to have had it, uh, it's a bloody good channel anyway. Yeah, but and, even if you don't identify as bi or trans. Yeah. Well, apart from anything else, you may know people who do. And being able to... And could be very informative. Yeah. Well, and also being able to see the world through other people's eyes a little bit is helpful. It makes you a better person, I think. I mean... I like to think so. I, I certainly think that... I mean, I, I relate to the world pretty much exclusively through comics um that is my media of choice i i read a lot more comics than i read books i read a lot more comics than i watch movies or tv so the window through which i see the world is is very much comics i have a genuinely appreciated as as somebody who comes from i don't know how do we describe it the main the mainstream, the default. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual, white, middle-aged man. I am the default of British culture. As that, I have found it immensely useful and enlightening to 
read more diverse stories. In as because when I started reading comics, unless you were heavily into the underground scene, comics were very, very straight, white, cisgendered, and male. Um, if there were women at all, they were there as either somebody for the hero to rescue or somebody to tempt the hero or as a reward. That's pretty much what female characters in comics were. They were girlfriends. They were wives. They were victims. Um, If there were characters, well, first of all, there really weren't characters who would be identified as being LGBTQIA plus at all. And the first one I can, think of is uh north star that was the late 80s uh so you know they just weren't there but as as we got more diverse characters more diverse stories i found reading those helped shape the worldview that i have now if that makes any sense at all um so for instance the first same-sex relationship i was aware of In fiction or real life, I must have known gay people. I must. But I didn't know that they were. Um, Was um, Francine and Catchy from Strangers in Paradise, uh, which is a comic that started in the early 90s and ran. Well, I suppose in a very real, the actual series Strangers in Paradise ran until the early 2000s. But it, in a very real sense, is still running because there have been spinoffs and stuff. And. I don't think I was ever actively homophobic. In fact, I'm sure I wasn't. But I equally, and I think it's probably just because I didn't know anybody who was in a same-sex relationship at the time, but equally, I didn't sort of think of it as real. It was something that I sort of intellectually knew was a thing, but it was completely outside my experience. And then stuff like Strangers in Paradise came along, and I started, suddenly there were people from a sexuality that was not mine who I understood and cared about and i think that did change my view of things so i think that kind of representation in fiction is very important and i think looking back at fiction from a long time ago just classic fiction if you will and finding those relationships there as well i also think is important because I really hope I'm making sense now Um, because there is a tendency amongst the people who push back against recognizing queer relationships as valid to sort of suggest that this is a new thing that's only recently been invented. Well, it's kind of similar to the the argument that that you hear from the anti or the, the, the homophobic crowd, I should say, that's, oh, Homosexuality was invented in the fifties. Yes. Um, well, they've they've never had Sappho, clearly, or Shakespeare. <laughs> or Shakespeare come to that. Um, but but the, yeah, there is that there is that tendency amongst that crowd to say, oh yeah, all of this, yeah, the it wasn't like this in my day. Crowd, and I think again whether I accept the arguments for Frodo and Sam having a queer relationship or not, I think it's incredibly good 
that people are looking back at older fiction and finding evidence for it because it is a way to push back against those people and to say, oh, right, so this is just stuff that modern writers have made up. Well, have you read Lord of the Rings? Because you've got to at least ask the question about Frodo and Sam. Mm. Um, and, particularly- and also the reason why we haven't had any overt queer literature until the recent decades, and that's putting that's being generous, um, is because a they weren't sent. You know, we don't have censorship laws that prevent people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't go from. The um, you can actually publish queer literature now mm. without facing, um, without at the very least facing any consequences or controversy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still the case in some countries around the world today, but certainly not in the UK or US. Or if, you know, there were some fringe groups, they still exist, unfortunately, that would protest its publication. Um, it's just a matter of finding another publisher that's willing to, or you can mm. just ignore them. Yeah, well, they, they can try their best. Yeah, it's it's it, it's you know it's, it's it's possible now to get your stuff out there without having to go through a a, a publisher. Um, yeah, there's yeah, there's even it's that certainly as true. well. It's, 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 it's you know there is such a thing now as independent artists and yeah, I mean authors. It's certainly true that even after the uh, the censorship rules were scrapped in the sixties, you you couldn't. You probably still couldn't public couldn't get overtly gay work out there because the publishers wouldn't publish it because the publishers didn't believe it would sell because they didn't believe there was a market there for it. Um, you know, even if even if they didn't disapprove, you know, they didn't want to publish it because they didn't think they'd make any money. I think they were probably wrong, but there you go. Yeah, and thirdly, and I think most importantly, in countries like the UK and the US, although in the US it's still a bit. US um, in terms now, of yeah yeah you know you're not gonna face any kind of prosecution or persecution for being gay so it that's another thing I think we would have to mm. bear in mind why well, people indeed I, I, I don't think didn't, I, weren't over, weren't didn't it, you know in inject any overtly gay subtext or text for that matter back when J.R. Tolkien was around because, mm. and I think, I think you it, could very much face persecution. I think it's probably useful to to see these these possibilities in something like Tolkien as well, because if we just want to point at literature with a gay subtext from earlier times, I mean, you only really have to point at Oscar Wilde and. Well, look what happened to him. But, but, well, quite. But also, um, Wild, Wild doesn't help us particularly in this case because, you know, first of all, yeah, look what happened to him. But also, Wild was very much an exception. He wasn't really part of the establishment. He was always an outsider, really. The whole aesthetic movement was. Um, whereas somebody like Tolkien, it's very hard to think of somebody who was more respectable than J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, he was an Oxford Don. He was a very highly respected academic. You know, he lived a very quiet life. 
I don't think there's a single photograph of him where he's not wearing tweed. You know, he's he's that kind of pillar of the establishment. And so, you know, if we just if we look for queer representation and we just hold up Oscar Wilde, we are sort of reinforcing the being queer is a is a different thing. It's it's you know, it's for out, for outsiders, it's not part of the mainstream of society. Whereas if we can hold up Tolkien as a potential and, and his work as a potential example of this, then that's yeah, just perfectly normal run of the mill stuff really. There are no gay stereotypes that attach to Tolkien in any way at all. I will continuously be reminded of what Kazima said in Orphan Black when he meets Rachel and Rachel says, Oh, you're gay. And she turns around to my sexuality is the least interesting thing about me. Yeah. That's the least interesting thing about all of us, really. Isn't it? I mean, it's, apart from the else, it's completely irrelevant to most people. It bears no weight on your political views or, again, your personality, um, your morals, what your likes, dislikes. Well, I think, I think the, the point really uh, and I think actually the fact that there is no yeah whether whether there is a sexual attraction between Sam and Fredo or not, um, as far as we know, there is no sexual activity. Yeah, you know, there's no evidence that they get it on at any point in the book because it, your sexuality is not really about sex either, is it? I mean, it, well, not not it, solely. It's also about romantic attraction. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, clearly, it has a bearing on the people that you may or may not have sex with. But that's not really what it's about. It's about who you are attracted to. It's about who who you... It's about love. It's about who you fall in love with. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's something that society in real life, but also fiction, often struggles with. Okay, so we will move on, and uh, we've got some comics recommendations for you, because of course we have. And we're going to start with something from Dark Horse Comics called Last Flight Out. It's written by um, Mark Guggenheim, uh, with art from... uh, I've lost his name. Uh, Eduardo Figuerito, who I don't think I know his work from anywhere. Uh, Guggenheim's worked on the X-Men, and I know I've seen his work there. Uh, what it is, it, it's another we done broke the planet kind of story. The idea is that Earth is completely uninhabitable, and humanity is evacuating into the stars. There's one last ship about to leave. It's going to go in 24 hours' time. It's the very last arc, and it's going to leave forever and with 24 hours to go the designer's daughter goes missing so this isn't really a story about the end of the world it's not really a story about people evacuating the earth it's the story of a father trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter it's about desperation love hope despair and the things that you'll do when you are really, really up against the deadline. What if you can't find her? Does he keep looking? 
or did he board the ship? There's a real sense of drama here. There's a real sense of risk. There are stakes. And it's also very thought-provoking. Yeah, what would you do? What would I do? I like to think I'd go and look for my daughter. I like to think I would let the ship go without me. But would I? Really? I don't know. The second pick for this week is completely different, but does have some of the same themes. And that is a comic called The Search for Who from Aftershock, who have long been one of my very, very favourite publishers. And The Search for Who focuses on the character of Aaron Say. And Aaron Say is all about family. Uh, he's just left the military and his first thought is for his ageing parents. He wants to provide for them. They own a bar. It's not doing particularly well. And then one night there's an attack and it's you know, shot up and you know, things are smashed and his parents are critically injured. But it turns out this attack was not a robbery gone wrong, which is what Aaron had originally thought. The attack was actually to do with his family. Aaron's mother reveals that she fled China to escape a blood feud between the Jewish and Chinese sides of her family. Both sides being heavily involved in organised crime. Now, there had been peace, a truce, between the two families, the Hu and the Margolis, but that truce has been broken, and now Aaron needs to look out for his parents and protect them from further violence. So, what's a boy to do? He leaps on a plane and heads off to China, a part of his heritage he'd never intended to explore. Walking a path he never wanted to walk. Um, it's written by uh, John Sway, who I know best from the, I think it was a Vault series, uh, Sarah and the Royal Stars, uh, and Steve Orlando, uh, who, yeah, what hasn't he written? Um, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter. And there's art from a, a, a person, I don't know if it's a guy, a woman, I don't know. Uh, they go by the name Rubine, whatever. That it's beautiful. It's such expressive, dynamic, explosive art. Uh, this is a fast-paced. I mean, honestly, the pace is completely relentless. Action-packed thriller, which is looking into some pretty complicated cultural issues, which I did not know anything about. Um, apparently. It, issues with um, Jewish and Chinese crime families in China is a thing. It, it's actually a thing that goes on. And I, I didn't know that. It never occurred to me that there was much of a Jewish diaspora in China. So, you know, comics, just educating. Uh, but honestly, this is such a great book. Uh, Aftershock rarely puts a foot wrong. This is yet another example of Aftershock doing something very different, very well. And honestly, you need to check this out. And finally, something completely different. Ladies and gentlemen, our final 
pick of the comics from this week's rack is The Army of Darkness 1979, because how was it not going to be? Seriously. If you do not know the film Army of Darkness, it is a sequel to the Evil Dead movies. And it's schlocky, violent horror, focusing on the character of Ash, Ashley Williams, who uh, has been fighting evil dead creatures for a long time in movies uh, and on TV. There's a TV show now, which I heartily recommend. Uh, I don't even like horror as a genre, particularly um, psychological horror. Yes, but the, the kind of violent slasher stuff never really done it for me. But oh, my goodness. Army of Darkness is so good. Um, the evil the, 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 because they're done with the right amount of humor. They're American films. They honestly could be British. And what we've got here is Ash in the late 1970s in the South Bronx dealing with gangs, the Necronomicon and Deadites. And oh, wow, it is so much fun. It is just so much fun. Uh, it's written by Rodney Barnes, who is the writer behind Philadelphia which is one of the best vampire stories I have come across in a very long time. Still running, still recommended. And it's got some gloriously chaotic art uh, from Tom Garcia uh, and uh, some really big names on co doing cover art as well, uh, which is not something I really care about, but, it, you know, it's a thing. And it, it's, just, it's just, if you know the if you know the films, if you know the character, you need to read this comic because it's just more. It's a fabulous, chaotic piece of horror history written by a guy who is a genuine fan. You can see and feel the affection and the love that Rodney Barnes has for not just this genre, but this character in particular. And honestly, it's one of the best comics additions to a film franchise. I've come across in ages. Cannot praise it highly enough. If you are a fan of the films, you owe it to yourself to find a copy of this and uh, give it a read. It is fabulous. Okay, we're going to leave that conversation there because thanks as good a place to stop it as we're going to get. Now, I have to apologise for the slightly deficient audio quality for the rest of the show. Um, I'm having to record the last 10 minutes, and I'm having to do that at work in the shop, which means we've got background music, and also, because of COVID, the doors are open to allow ventilation, which means we've got traffic noise, and of course, because of COVID, I am wearing a mask, which means my voice is going to be a little bit muffled. So do bear with, because it might be the last 10 minutes, but we've got something big. Because you can say what you like about the second two films in the trilogy. And I've said a lot of things about The Magic Reloaded and The Magic Revolutions. I really have. None of them were particularly positive. But The Matrix, the original Matrix, was utterly and completely groundbreaking. It remains one of the best superhero movies ever made, and it is a superhero movie. It changed the way we look at cinema. 
in a way very few films do. It may have been one of the most revolutionary movies since Star Wars, which I do not say like believing. So, I'm excited about Lana Wachowski's Matrix Resurrections. I really am. The trailer dropped today. As I'm talking to you now, it's been available for only a few hours, and it is stunning. Now, I have to be cautious. I should say that I thought the trailer for Matrix Reloaded also looked stunning. I got very excited about it, and then I saw the film. So, you know, trailers can be deceiving. But I've got to say, what we've seen in that three-minute trailer has really got me excited. We have Neo back inside the Matrix. We have another white rabbit. We have another bald black guy with consonate sunglasses. We have agents. We have Trinity. I'm seriously excited for this. So, links in the show notes. I, in fact, if, if, if I can, I'll embed the actual trailer in the show notes. If you haven't seen the trailer already, I mean, surely most of you have. It is going to be interesting to see what the vision of the Matrix is when it's only coming from one of the Wachowskis. Um, I'm interested to see in what direction Lana Wachowski takes this. It, the trailer has a very original Matrix action movie vibe to it. But it also seems to me to have a little bit of an undercurrent of the slightly more thoughtful than the original Matrix, perhaps. So, um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. The, the movie's out at Christmas, so it's not that long to wait. So, yeah, let's get excited, folks. Let's get excited. And while we're on the subject of exciting things that are happening in various screen media, there are two things on Disney Plus that I want to point out to you because they're both brilliant. Uh, I'm a little bit late to the party in, on both. I mentioned both, I think, before, but I finally got around to watching them. Oh, boy. So, I want to make it very clear. This is not a paid commercial for Disney+. Plus. We do not take paid advertising, and I wouldn't take Disney Plus's money from them anyway, I don't think. Not a big fan of Disney, but they do have all of the pretty things. Uh, two of the pretty things that Disney have right now are a documentary series called The 616, and an animated show called What If. Now, The 616 is about the influence that Marvel and Marvel stories and Marvel characters have had in the wider world, which is a little bit egotistical of them, if we're honest. But I'm going to let it go, because Marvel has been a very influential creative company over the last five decades, more even. So the show's called The 616 because in the multiverse in which stories from Marvel take place, the, the dimension that is reality for all of the these Marvel characters you know and love is Dimension 616, as established, I think, by Alan Moore in the Captain Britain comics in the 80s. And so that's where the name comes from. And as I say, the show focuses on the influences that Marvel stories and characters have had around the world in various cultures. And it starts 
with the Japanese Spider-Man. Now, I was aware of the Japanese Spider-Man. I've seen clips on YouTube. There will, I think, be some links in the show notes to various clips of the Japanese Spider-Man. He's very different to the Peter Parker we all know and love. He's Japanese, for a start, and not all Peter Parker. He's actually a professional motorcycle racer, and uh, he has adventures after being gifted the spider powers by an alien from the planet Spider in order that our Spider-Man can avenge his murdered father. Yeah, it's very different. But it's also brilliant, and it's also gloriously reflective of the difference between American and Japanese cultures in the 1970s. And well, and now, I suspect, but certainly the 1970s. And you can see the roots of many things in the Japanese Spider-Man, including, believe it or not, Transformers. Without the Japanese Spider-Man, there may never have been Transformers. So there you go. There's a the thing. Um, obviously, other episodes look at different things, but all of them have been fascinating so far. And I highly commend the series to you, if you have Disney+. Plus. If you don't, see if you've got a mate who has and go around that house and look at it. Also on Disney+, Plus, as I said, we have What If. Now, What If, as a comic, has been running for decades. And it's basically the idea of um, what if Spider-Man was not an orphan? Or what if the radioactive spider had bitten somebody else? Or what if Captain America hadn't been frozen in ice? Or, yeah, just what if things like that. The kind of things that geeks and nerds took around when we get together at conventions and stuff. And it plays out those stories. It's animated, which I think, to be fair, is probably the only way they could have done it. And it does, though, feature the voice talents of many of the actors who have played the characters on live-action stuff. So the first one, what if Agent Carter had taken the Super Serum? Agent Carter is voiced by Hayley Atwell, and there are several other cast members from the movies that lend their voice talent. Um, what if T'Challa had become Star-Lord? That's voiced by Chadwick Boseman in his last work for Marvel. Now, that's something special, and it is a special performance. It's really, really good. also features How the Duck, which is always a good thing. So, both of these shows I commend to you. Um, I'm not going to do a podcast recommendation this month, uh, because we've already, this month, this week, because we've already mentioned a couple in the discussion with Alice, and links to those are in the show notes. Um, nothing, absolutely nothing, zip, zippo, nada, nix, on the Geek Community Cork Board this week. Clearly, none of you have got very much going on. I suppose it is back to school time and all that sort of thing. People are distracted. I understand this. It's fine. I'm not offended that nobody's talking to me. If you do have anything for the Geek Community Corkboard, please, please hit me up. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. All right, I think that's about it, actually. So, we will leave it there. Um, show notes available at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, links and everything that you need from this show available there from probably about 9pm on the 9th of September. All that remains is to thank you for your kind attention point out that Geeking Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Writing Media. We will see you next week. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind 
to everybody else. Until the next time we meet up, to go geeking.